story of Christmas spiritual pollution by Sternwriter. Part 7. Dapper Man. Hazy in Beijing's dust-filled winter air, the bus's outline gradually appeared and then loomed above the flow of cyclists filing along the straight road. It would be a minute or two before anyone could discern its number. Dapper Man hadn't moved a muscle. Having spotted the bus, the rest of the crowd turned back to catch the rest of the show. There was still time for some Laowai entertainment before elbow and jostle time. It may have been a while since the foreigners had uttered an intelligible Chinese word, but it was still gripping stuff. Robert was still reporting what he'd gleaned from the Dutch PhD students at the dorm. Vim's mate said it was quite common for class traitors to be imprisoned in their homes or places of work, but they still found it amazing that Clock could have been so untraumatized at being back in his jail cell. Maybe, said Callum, maybe when a whole country of a billion people goes that crazy for that long, it's not such a big deal for any individual. As these words came from his mouth, Callum could feel them turning to ice and falling at his feet. Robert discreetly ignored them. Both teenagers felt out of their depth, unqualified to even speculate on such matters. Callum imagined telling this story to his friends back in Kirkodi and wondered how it would sound. At least Clock was in Beijing, where his family's from, Robert eventually continued. Millions of people with the wrong class background were exiled to dirt-poor villages thousands of miles from home. Xiaxiang, they called it, being sent down to the countryside. At this familiar Chinese word, some of the crowd looked at each other. The dapper man stretched his shoulders and shivered. Maybe it was the cold. The bus number was almost visible now. Some of the crowd were getting jittery. But Dapper Man resumed his previous stance, observant but still unobserved by Callum and Robert. Their audience having now reformed as a rugby scrum around the bus stop, Robert peered over the backs of their heads at the approaching bus. Nah, not this one, Robert said. The bus doors hissed open, revealing an apparently jam-packed bus. Elbows jostled and the miracle of passenger osmosis repeated itself. A few of the crowd, having seen it wasn't their bus either, instead jostled for front row positions in the free bus stop Lao Wai show. Dapper Man had remained motionless throughout, not even looking at the bus number. Callum and Robert noticed him for the first time before resuming their conversation. Robert began relating what Vim's mate, the one doing a PhD on Chinese translations of English literature, had told him about his new academic supervisor. Apparently, there are loads of veteran academics coming back now, he said. Vim taught me the characters. They call it Ping Fan. With this, Robert sketched the characters on the palm of his hand, a reflex they'd picked up from Chinese people used when explaining which characters they mean. Callum and Robert found it impossible to follow the imaginary brushstrokes and often joked about it by air-writing something with their hands facing themselves and then displaying empty palms to each other. Normally, one of them would have deployed this in-joke at this point, particularly as the fact that they were wearing thick gloves would have made it even funnier. A peasant on a bicycle festooned with dozens of live geese heaved his way past. He was cycling carefully and not very fast, but he still overtook another peasant who was holding a radio to his ear as he pedaled his flatbed tricycle occupied by a single beast. The radio, 
inevitably, was playing one-way ticket. His passenger was an enormous sow, hogtied, and contained in a kind of carrying cage fashioned from strips of bamboo. Normally, this would have engaged Callum and Robert's full attention, but neither of them even noticed this passing traffic. As the honking and one-way ticket faded away, they resumed their conversation. The characters for Ping Fan mean something like having your conviction overturned or rehabilitated, Robert said. They use it when they bring back people with the wrong class background who'd been sent to the countryside during the Cultural Revolution as class traitors. Now it was Callum's turn to recall one of the communist propaganda phrases they'd been taught the previous year. Capitalist running dogs. At this Chinese phrase, a ripple ran through their bus stop audience. But they were soon distracted as another bus emerged from the dusty haze, apparently borne along the river of bicycles that never seemed to stop flowing. Certainly not on December the 25th. The bus began to decelerate and all the crowd but one began to jostle for red-painted pole position. The dapper eavesdropper, hands still clasped behind his back, somehow now seemed to be standing half a step closer. Exactly, said Robert. The kind of people they call capitalist running dogs are now having their sins absolved. They can now return home to the cities and go back to their old jobs. Well, what made them change their minds, asked Callum. Vim said it's because the universities suddenly value these people's expertise more than whether they were a class traitor or not, said Robert. They've only just reintroduced university entrance exams. Until a couple of years ago, all they cared about was how extreme a red guard nutter you were. Now they want people who know more than just how to wave the little red book around and chant slogans. Dapper Man seemed about to say something when Robert said, hang on, that's the number 388, we can take this one. Callum and Robert continued their conversation as they joined their former audience in the waiting scrum. Callum said, so all these professors who spent the past decade mucking out pig farms in Inner Mongolia or threshing wheat in Xinjiang, they're now being, what did you call it? Ping fund? Rehabilitated, said Robert. Vim's mate, the one studying Chinese translations of Jane Austen, he's just been assigned this new supervisor who's just been Ping Fund. Apparently, he's this incredible scholar who was educated in English at some Jesuit college in Shanghai in the 1930s. He was doing some postdoc in Oxford when the communists took over, and after liberation, he came back to help rebuild the motherland. The bus was only a few seconds from stopping now, and the jostling had intensified. He was head of our uni's English department, said Robert, but got sent to Tibet in 1967 because his uncle had a servant or something. Apparently he's astonishingly smart and well-read and talks like Mr. Darcy. Callum nudged Robert with his elbow. The two teenage students braced themselves by the red pole, knees bent, elbows akimbo, like speed skaters at the starting line. It had the desired effect of parting the crowd, astonished that the monkeys were finally performing. As the doors hissed and the crowd began to envelop them, the dapper man addressed Callum and Robert in flawless English. I beg your pardon, gentlemen. May I inquire if by any chance you might be British, an Englishman and a Scotsman perchance? As the crowd closed around them, propelling them onto the bus, the Englishman and the Scotsman could only snap their heads back, nodding, yes, open-mouthed. Now they were the astonished ones. Before the doors closed on them, they thought they heard the dapper man say, almost to himself, Ah, yes, I thought as much. 
Your accents betrayed you. The series was written, narrated and produced by Sternwriter. Audio production by Samuel Wynne. The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories is a see-through news production. See-through news is a not-for-profit social media network with the goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. For more, visit seethroughnews.org. Thank you for listening.